This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Loss and damage is our theme tonight. Think of the loss and damage we know about here in the Lismore floods. I'm sure you have as many human pictures in your mind as I do. Well, extend that to the epic floods in Pakistan, to the relentless drought in Mexico, China and Eastern Africa. It's three years now in a row they haven't had rainfall in their um, agricultural lands. Plus heat waves in Europe, California and India. Global emissions are intensifying all these and a global effort is needed to pay for repairs. Well, COP26 failed to deliver the finance to countries reeling from climate breakdown. So as we move towards COP27 in Egypt, we'll hear from Dr. Salim Ulhaq talking to Nick Breeze from Climate Gen. We are trying to build momentum so that this year the money will start flowing. In one of his most compelling speeches at the United Nations, we'll hear Antonio Gutierrez after visiting the Pakistan floods. He says they are not only drowning in water, but in debt. He urges not only money into the loss and damage fund, but debt relief from the major banks as a matter of urgency. For such an accomplished speaker who can move seamlessly into beautiful French and Spanish, I love the way Antonio Gutierrez always gets fossil fuels a bit wrong, as if that industry really is managed by fossil fools. At the end, we'll hear a tiny pep talk from Extinction Rebellion in London, who have been very active in September, targeting the banks and Parliament. But to start, here is a brand new campaign in Australia called Moving Beyond Coal. You can join it anywhere in Australia that you can find a NAB bank. With us now is Fahima Badrul Hisham. She is an architect and a dynamo behind well-designed campaigns. She's a veteran of many. We've spoken to her before about Stop Adani and her very moving experience up there in Queensland with the Wangan and Jagalingu people. They are still holding continuous ceremony in the shadow of the Carmichael coal mines slag heap and demonstrating non-violent action, how much it attracts support and admiration. Each year they get over a hundred people coming up there to learn and to just sit with them and listen, especially Aboriginal people all around the country who I think are probably going to, some of them, copy that example. So welcome, Fahima. Tell us about this new coalition of climate action groups called Beyond Coal. Uh, it's um, actually Move Beyond Coal. And yeah, so Move Beyond Coal is, um, yeah, as you say, it's a, it's a network. The aim is to learn from our experience in the Stop Adani campaign and, with the, uh, and, and grow a big, diverse uh, movement. And the ultimate aim is to phase out Australian coal by 2030. That's a huge aim. <laughs> and I attended a meeting last week in uh, Petersham Town Hall, full of people, all willing uh, to form little local groups. And I think they're much more strategic than I've heard about before. And there's a six-week campaign called Not One More Dollar, uh, focusing on the National Australia Bank and their financing of the largest Australian coal miner called Whitehaven. So what's the plan? Yeah, so the, the plan is for, as you say, lots and lots and lots of groups to form around Australia. And over the six weeks, all these groups will sort of like 
take on a branch in their suburb or kind of like near their workplace, near their place of worship, and aim to sort of uh, engage with the branch manager and staff so that they can sort of like we can build up the pressure from within the company to to talk to higher level decision makers at NAB about their funding of Whitehaven Coal. So I think Whitehaven is important because they currently plan to double their coal production. They are already, um, as you say, kind of the, the biggest coal only company in Australia. So we're talking about massive, massive volumes of coal. So they don't have um, a plan to exit coal. They don't have a climate action plan. And NAB plans to keep funding that company. I think a couple of years ago, NAB you know, loaned them something like over $100 million, mm. which is an obscene amount. And NAB also recently released its own kind of like climate action plan where they claim to be aligned with the Paris Agreement to keep warming to 1.5 degrees, but you can't have that ambition and also be funding the the biggest coal companies in the world. I think that's a crunch point, or that's an, a place where you can get at them, especially if you're talking to the staff and the managers, because uh, Market Forces, uh, which for listeners is a, a group based in Melbourne, uh, recently one of their uh, Julian Vincent, we heard from him, they. He won the Goldman Prize for environmental action. Well, Market Forces recently had a success getting Credit Suisse to walk away from Whitehaven. So can tell us about some success stories that, that listeners should know to, to see that this does sometimes work. This can work. Yeah, uh, well, absolutely. So as I mentioned before, we are learning from the Stop Adani campaign and picking up on the wins that we've had there. So if you remember, Stop Adani was working for a long time uh, into pushing insurers away from thermal coal. And because now coal companies like new coal projects are um, finding it really hard to get insurance, it makes thermal coal projects economically unappealing to investors. So it no longer makes economic sense. And I think we're going to keep pushing funding away from coal, which is why the campaign hashtag is um, not another dollar. And, and because the Labour government is saying that new fossil fuel projects have to stack up um, economically and environmentally. So by pushing corporations to, um, to move away from providing services to um, thermal coal projects, this will make those projects untenable economically. And we all know that coal extraction comes with a lot of injustices and a lot of environmental damage. So whichever way you cut the issue, coal just doesn't, doesn't make sense anymore. So we're going to keep pushing on that until we don't dig up coal anymore. What, what examples inspire you? There must be some examples where there's been a win. Yeah, um, one of my favorite ones is from last last year, um, Adani was looking to get a few Korean companies to refinance its debt. One of the companies that Adani was uh, speaking to is called Hanwha. So Hanwha is based in South Korea, and I think they manufacture heavy machinery for, for mining projects, but they're also looking to expand into solar panels. So um, I went with a group of people to Hanwha's office in North Sydney, where they are developing um, these solar panels. And um, we went to the office and kind of like had a, had a cheeky little action where we sort of like did a, did a banner reveal in the office and kind of just sat in the lobby and waited to speak to the uh, manager. And I think because we went after the socially responsible projects to make a point about their fossil fuel projects, um, which was like a very delicate balance to strike. It was like a very sensitive point for them. Mm -hmm. So in less than a week, Hanwha uh, announced that they are ruling out working with Adani. So um, I was very pleased with that. That was an excellent win. <laughs> yeah. And this is people power, isn't it? It's not with a large number of people. I'm sure it's just, I've seen you in some of your actions with a few people climbing up palm trees in Chifley Square and you know it was it just as a maybe 50 people around and yes it eventually sometimes these dominoes fall so the IEA said Australia has the largest pipeline 
I'm, I'm reading these listeners because honestly, all the debates I go to, they hardly ever mention Australia's exported emissions. We keep con concentrating on the 43% of our own domestic emissions, which we're going to get down by 2030. Hooray, but that's not where the big game is. The IEA says Australia has the largest pipeline of new coal projects for export. There are 29 projects on our Environment Minister Plibersek's desk right now, and that would equal 35 times our domestic emissions. And that's our responsibility. The world does not force us to have that responsibility, but we should realise that that is our responsibility. If we export it, it'll be burned. And Tanya Plibersek did block Clive Palmer's recent Central Queensland mine. So I wonder why your focus is not on Tanya Plibersek, why it's on the financing side. We, we will at, um, eventually kind of like have a political component to our, um, our campaigning. So as I mentioned before, so this campaign has a timeline until 2030. So there'll be lots and lots and lots of things we can do in the meantime. And because we're starting from a lot of experience and expertise, working in collaboration with um, you know, market forces on corporate campaigning. So we, we already do have a ton of experience looking at co-funding and, and other corporations that sort of support the um, coal industry. So, and, and you're absolutely right. The coal industry is supported by both politicians, uh, corporations, and also the media. And, but at the moment, um, I know that Whitehaven are about to head into their AGM and, and they do have four massive expansions and some greenfield coal mines as well. And some of those are in fact on Minister Pubasek's desk. Yeah, so Whitehaven's heading into his AGM and so is SNAP. So the, the timing to focus on um, corporates for the next six weeks or so, it would be a good opportunity to start um, announcing our movement to the world and um, start engaged with NAB. And I think as well, like if, if a core project does not have financial backing, then it's going to be harder for governments to approve it. Okay, well, for listeners, the next six weeks, this is leading up to the COP27 in Egypt, the next six weeks, we're going to focus on Whitehaven Coal and its financing through NAB. So a lot of listeners might like something like that, a short campaign, they can lend a bit of support. It's not a huge support. There's groups all over the country being formed where you adopt your local branch. I really like that idea because it's I know where to go. That's the one place I can develop a kind of an idea of what, what's happening there. So just explain to listeners how they can find out about it. Move Beyond Coal. So if you go to movebeyondcoal.com, um, you can find like a list of local groups that have formed in your area. So you can request to join those groups. And if you're game, you can also look up a list of NAP branches that haven't been adopted and start your own local groups. Was Fahima Baduhisham from the Moving Beyond Coal Coalition with their Not One More Dollar campaign. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. The present is already catastrophic. The present is already scary. If we fail to address loss and damage, the future will be much worse. This is loss and damage. It's what happens when climate change intensified disasters like hurricanes, wildfires and floods, and slow moving catastrophes like droughts and sea level rise lead to a loss of life, culture, biodiversity, territory, and livelihoods, as well as damage to homes, hospitals, schools, and roads, which often forces people to flee their homes. Loss and damage as of 2022 is taking place in every single country in the world, including rich countries, but the impacts are mostly on poor people in the poor countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. If your island is going underwater, you have to move. If your farmland is turning into desert, you have to leave. If forest fires are destroying your home, what choice do you have? In 2020, we saw heavy rainfall causing four rivers to burst their banks in the western part of Uganda, causing massive destruction and leaving over 100,000 people displaced. 
in the global negotiations on climate change in the Paris Agreement in 2015, Article 8 was agreed to tackle loss and damage. But since then, not a single penny has been made available for the victims of loss and damage from climate change. And this is a problem because areas prone to loss and damage are no longer insurable. Insurance is something that works on probability. When you know that you are definitely going to be impacted by climate change, insurance doesn't work. Therefore, money for people to put their lives back together needs to come from somewhere else. Those who are at the front lines are the least responsible for the climate crisis. I do believe in the polluter pays principle. Fossil fuel companies and the biggest polluting countries have the responsibility to provide compensation for loss and damage. The major fossil fuel companies around the world have known for decades that they were producing a polluting product and they have suppressed that information and they prevented action. As a result, they've made billions of dollars of profit. Therefore, they are completely liable to be challenged now to pay up for the loss and damage that they have knowingly caused amongst poor people in poor countries in particular. Although there is clearly a pressing need to support communities impacted by loss and damage, finance has been blocked, denied, and deemed too expensive by those who have polluted. The Global North hasn't done anything about loss and damage because it has refused to accept responsibility for the climate crisis. They don't want to pay the bill. With similar compensation funds already in existence, it is high time to set one up for loss and damage. We do have an example of compensation for pollution. The major oil companies all have a fund that they put money into where if there's an oil spill, those who have been affected can claim compensation without having to prove which company caused the damage. And that's what we need for loss and damage from climate change. The present is already catastrophic. The present is already scary. And if compensation is not given, the future is going to be much worse. COP26 failed to deliver finance for loss and damage. We need to build momentum from Glasgow to COP27 to secure finance for loss and damage once and for all. From the perspective of vulnerable communities and vulnerable countries, COP26 failed to deliver finance for loss and damage. For the people at the front lines who need that money now, we expect COP27 to deliver it. COP27 will only be successful if a compensation fund is put in place for communities that are facing the impacts of the climate crisis right now. We have been waiting and waiting for the last 30 years and we cannot wait any longer. If we do not address loss and damage, then there is no climate justice. It's not just what loss and damage is, but what it means. It speaks of the existential threat that the heating of our fragile band of atmosphere represents. It's the signpost of what's to come. The alarm bell that tells us we are running out of road for ignoring it as if it isn't there. We are running out of road for doing nothing proportionate to the scale of the problem. We are running out of road. Taking care of those at the sharp end of this climate change that is happening now, not tomorrow, but now is urgent and long overdue. In this episode of the Climate Gen podcast, I'm speaking to Dr. Sally Mulhuck about the true outcome of COP26, highlighting how the UK presidency abandoned the world's most vulnerable nations in order to toe the line of the USA. Salim also makes it clear that 1.1 degrees C, where we are today, is the new 1.5 degrees C. Climate impacts are here and they are devastating lives and also taking lives. We must stop thinking about climate action in the future tense and start taking action in the present before it is truly too late to adapt to what we know is coming. Once highly regarded as a nation who wielded great strength in diplomacy, COP26 will be remembered for the British government's disastrous inability to manage events of global importance. As we move away from Glasgow, the threat of extreme impacts grows all the time around us, and in response we commit to increasing greenhouse gas emissions that are driving us off the cliff. The pledges made cannot be trusted on the basis that previous pledges have been broken. 
If, as Salim says, the rich countries continue to bully the poorer nations while consuming the remaining carbon budgets, then our own moral integrity is what is in question. At what point do we say no more? Salim, it's great to see you again. Um, I want to start by just asking, in the wake of Glasgow, there are many different voices and some are more positive and others are decrying the lost opportunity to make progress on a range of issues. What's your own final assessment of COP26? So I'll give you several um, reflections on, on COP26. The first one uh, is the big picture of uh, the ambition that everybody had going into it, including the COP26 presidency, was completely belied by the outcome. Um, and I'll just give you one indicator of that. So the vulnerable countries under the Climate Vulnerable Forum, which are 55 of the most vulnerable countries under the leadership of Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina of Bangladesh, who was there in the, the first two days leader session, asked for, in fact, demanded that the Glasgow outcome should be called the Glasgow Climate Emergency Pact. What we got in the end from the COP26 presidency was the Glasgow Climate Pact. The word emergency disappeared, both in terms of the word and the substance. The COP26 presidency did not recognize this as an emergency, did not treat it as an emergency. They just treated it as an incremental progress and now they are patting themselves on the back for making tiny little uh, incremental steps forward you know, they got the word coal in and they're congratulating themselves after 30 years being able to mention the word coal. These are, you know, trivial outcomes that simply do not rise to the occasion that we are in a climate changed world. It completely um, um, flies in the face of the science and precisely, and also precisely. The, what the climate vulnerable countries are actually facing today. Exactly. So, you know, I characterized COP26 going in as being the first COP in the era of loss and damage from climate change. It's already happening everywhere, including in the rich countries. And they just simply did not rise to the occasion. You know, there was language put forward by the developing countries asking for a Glasgow facility on loss and damage that was in the text in the penultimate text on Friday evening, which was the official time for finishing. But then it went into extra time on Saturday. And in the extra time, that language disappeared. Language put forward by 5 billion people, 138 countries. It disappeared because one country, the United States, didn't want it. And the COP26 presidency just bent to their demand. So we've seen a lot of bluster, from, especially from the US, for example, as well as the UK. And loss and damage is an interesting topic because it crosses the, our own perceptions of insurance and how we perceive our own safety in the face of these impacts. What's the pathway forward from here on loss and damage as you see it? Because this is, I know you're an expert on this one. Sure. So I would say, you know, I've just expressed my disappointment with the official outcome from the negotiations, which were, as I said, uh, usurped by one country, the United States, not wanting to talk about what everybody else wants to talk about. And that simply is not right. Uh, but something very interesting happened outside the UNFCC, which was our other host in Scotland, namely the government of Scotland, uh, headed by First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, actually put on the table a, a million pounds initially and then doubled it to two million pounds to start, kickstart a loss and damage fund. And she challenged other leaders to match it. In the meantime, the province of Wallonia in Belgium have added a, a million euros and a number of foundations have added about $5 million. So we have a loss and damage fund going, but it's outside the UNFCC. And we hope we'll build on that and be able to attract others uh, who are willing to put money into this issue, which obviously in the UNFCC, we are getting nowhere on. Okay, that's interesting because it's almost moving around the COP process. Absolutely. And do you think this sort of more agile approach might be something that accelerates? I think so. I think the way forward is going to be coalitions of the willing, 
We actually saw that in the COP as well. So there's a, a bunch of countries on forestry came out with an, a bunch of countries on coal phase out. Uh, you know, they, these are all coalitions of the willing that want to take things forward. And I see the same thing happening on loss and damage because getting consensus amongst 196 countries is almost impossible nowadays. You know, one country can veto it. And as I said, the language on loss and damage was because one very powerful country vetoed what everybody else wanted. Okay, and when you get this kind of response, what does it do to the trust that either exists or is diminishing between the, the vulnerable countries and countries like the US or Europe? Or... Well, the trust has been decimated. You know, just take the issue of money, for example. There was $100 billion promised by the rich countries. Uh, actually, the promise started in Copenhagen 12 years ago by Hillary Clinton. It got reiterated six years ago in Paris by the rich countries. And then six years later, they come to Glasgow and say, they actually inserted language saying, we're very sorry, we can't do it. And we're not going to do it for another three years. You'll get it in 2023. Um, so, you know, that is the, the level of uh, deception, I would call it, that these countries uh, come forward with and expect to get away with and actually do get away with, which completely destroys the trust. You know, the vulnerable countries left Glasgow with tears in their eyes. They had to swallow this kind of bullying from the rich countries. And I don't see how long, how much longer they're going to do that. Okay. And, it, you know, you have to be clear that these are the countries that are actually causing the damage and not, not and taking the word emergency out of, out of the final outcome. So, um, for people who are engaged in the climate issue, and the number is rising as pe more people realise their own vulnerability, we see a, a yawning gap between where the politics is, which we've just talked about, and where people are saying that we really need to be. How do we bridge this gap now? Because it, it's seeing you know, that rising anxiety is also becoming a part of this. Well, I, I, I don't see us having to bridge the gap. I see us having to take actions. And, you know, that's the, the good part of the COP. So we, I just described the bad COP, which was what happened inside the blue zone, inside the negotiations. But there was a very good COP that took place in Glasgow as well, outside that blue zone. You know, tens of thousands of us from all over the world, indigenous people, young people, business people, academics like myself, we network like crazy. We talked to each other. We talked about doing things together globally. And there are networks of global actors all over the place taking actions every single day. And that's what's needed to tackle climate change. This once a year meeting of leaders who don't do anything is simply not fit for purpose anymore. It's a good gathering. It's a good place for all of us to go and network. But uh, expecting the leaders to rise to the occasion, they have only done that once in Paris six years ago, and they failed to do it ever since. Okay. And this idea of different cops within the cops has, has come up in other interviews, and it seems to be one that is really worth exploring because there's a sense of the, the, the blue zone, if we want to call it that, losing agency to what's going on outside and there's also what i detected in, a, in conversations a growing anger outside and there's this massive sort of barrier of police to keep the people who passionately care out of where the negotiations are taking place what do you think of that transferal of agency and and how it can be actually galvanized and used to a positive effect well, I, I personally feel that we do need to think out of the box uh, in terms of getting the best results out of these annual gatherings. And these gatherings have multiple purposes and multiple actors involved in them. Uh, we tend to focus and the media tends to focus almost exclusively on the government negotiations. To me, that's the wrong focus. The focus should be on people who are doing stuff. And that is really where the rest of us need to be involved. You know, I'm, I'm often asked, how was my COP? And, I, and I, my answer is always, my personal COP is always great because I spend the two weeks of the COP meeting old friends and making new friends. And I have a great time. I'm not a negotiator. I don't get stuck inside the 
you know, the closed door negotiations that go into the middle of the night or all night sometimes. I don't have to do that. I just, you know, stay from the outside and see what they're doing. Um, but I network and I meet lots of people and we talk about doing things, about practical things, about dealing with the problem of climate change and not just about talking about it. And, you know, Greta, very succinctly, as she always does, has very rightly characterized the negotiators as just doing blah, blah, blah. Uh, they do. That's true. They're absolutely correct. Uh, and so we have these parallel tracks of leaders who are not doing enough. Some are, some aren't. But when they get together, they cannot agree to do sufficient actions. Um, and then those who want to take action, let them take action. Let us all move forward in coalitions of the willing with state actors and non-state actors, because that's what we need. The problem is a daily problem. It's not a once a year problem. And it's happening now. It's not something we need to anticipate anymore. The last 25 COPs was about the future. COP26 is about now. And COP27 will be about now. And COP28 will be about now. These aren't no, no more about the future. And in a real sense, you know, the, the discussion of 1.5 degrees, although it's a very important discussion, is redundant. We need to be talking about the 1.1 degrees that have already happened and are already causing impacts of climate change. 1.1 is the new 1.5. Absolutely. And you just talked about, I mean, how we respond to 1.1, and I think that's a very important point. And it comes back to what you just said about thinking outside the box. If we just move away from the COP for a second, if you go to your students in Dhaka, in Bangladesh, what are they focusing on? What are the challenges that are on their agenda? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I characterize my, uh, my annual uh, program and I've been to these COPs, all, all 26 of them over the last few decades, is that I spend three weeks of my time at the COP. I go a week early by the way, before it starts. Uh, I work with the least developed countries negotiators, planning the COP uh, process, and then the two weeks of the COP, I stay there till the very end, and I stay extra time because it always goes into extra time as well. But that isn't my day job. I then go home, and for the other 49 weeks of the year, I'm on the ground in Bangladesh and in other vulnerable developing countries, working with the most vulnerable communities. And I can tell you, they are not sitting idle. They are going ahead and working and, in fact, learning how to adapt to the impacts of climate change very, very fast. And, in fact, one of the new uh, dimensions of the science of climate adaptation is that poor countries are often much better at it than rich countries are. And so that's something that the rich can learn from the poor in terms of adapting to the impacts of climate change. Just to give you an example, when the flash floods occurred in Germany, nearly 200 Germans died. In Bangladesh, people don't die from floods like that anymore. We, we evacuate. We have much bigger floods, by the way. It causes a lot more damage, but people don't die from them. I think there's a, there's a complacency in, I mean, you know, I'm in Europe, and there's a huge complacency around um, how big this problem really is and how fast it's coming at us. And it comes back to the 1.1, this understanding of what 1.1 really means. So, you know, COPs are just one of the milestones that are meant to guide us into the future. As we look over the next 12 months, are there other stepping stones along that way that you think um, kind of culminate by the time you get to the next COP? Absolutely. There's, there's something happening in every sphere and arena of action that is needed, all the way from mitigation actions, the race to zero initiatives that have taken place to the resilience and adaptations end of the spectrum where I operate. And I can tell you from my end of that spectrum, things are happening a lot. You know, we have been working on locally led adaptation all over the world. I, I run a big international conference called Gobeshana, which is a Bangla word for research of local actors together. The next one will be in February. Uh, there's also uh, gatherings of community-based adaptation actors, something uh, I've been involved in for the last decade and a half. These are very active communities of practice. Uh, and then there are many other such uh, activities, the national adaptation plans are being done under the aegis of the UNFCC. Uh, many, many things are happening on the ground, which are actually very heartening. Uh, the, the problem is that although there is a lot of good stuff happening, it's not happening fast enough, and it's not getting enough support to, to make it much bigger. And that really is where the global meetings come into play. This is to accelerate these actions. And unfortunately, you know, COP26 did not deliver acceleration. 
it yeah. delivered incremental progress. That's not good enough anymore. No, it's not. And now we are sort of, oh, I wouldn't say we're looking forward to COP27 just yet, but it's, it's there on the horizon. And interestingly, it's being held in Egypt, in Sharm el-Sheikh. Is this a change in dynamic? Do you think there's anything interesting about that location? I, I think so. So the Egyptians have already declared that the as COP president, they will regard it as an African COP. So the entire continent of Africa very much involved in planning and, and setting the agenda. In fact, I would say even beyond the Africans, they have also said it's a vulnerable countries COP. So even the, the non-African vulnerable countries like mine, Bangladesh, will, will be able to uh, um, contribute to setting the agenda and making sure that our agenda items get prominence. And I'll give you a very good stark contrast. You know, we demanded going into COP26 that loss and damage be a major agenda item. The presidency refused. They did not allow it. And as, as we saw in the end, they even succumbed to pressure from the United States to get an absolutely incredibly dishonest outcome on the language on loss and damage. All they offered us was a dialogue. You know, that is the most dishonest uh, outcome that a COP presidency is responsible for. I hold the UK responsible for that dismal outcome. They, refuse, they just succumb to pressure from the US. Um, and that's not what a presidency should do. A presidency should look for uniting actions and not give one country a veto against 138 other countries. Yeah, and you know, with the history of Britain, you would think that they would be able to use some diplomatic skill and yet it just We expected wasn't that. I mean, Mr. There. Boris Johnson didn't even come back to Glasgow at the end. In France, in Paris, the French president got involved in getting us the Paris Agreement. He rang up presidents and prime ministers around the world, including the king of Saudi Arabia, to get us the result in Paris. Mr. Johnson did not put in any political capital at all. Well, he came in the beginning, he had a big show, and then he went away. He didn't come back in the end. That's disgraceful. Well, look, thank you very much for speaking to me. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, Hopefully we can stay in touch and speak to you again along the stepping stones in the next 12 months. So look after yourself. Thank you. I hope my mood will get better over time. <laughs> I'll, I'll regain some of my optimism going into COP27. Oh, well, good. <laughs> it's great to see you, Celine. Good to see you, Nick. Thanks again for listening. It is important to stay up to date with your COVID-19 vaccinations, including your booster dose. Getting a booster means you'll increase your protection against severe disease and continue protecting your loved ones and community against COVID-19. You can get your free COVID-19 booster dose if you received your second dose of a COVID-19 vaccination at least three months ago. To book an appointment, visit australia.gov.au or call 1-800-020-080 and select 8 if you need an interpreter. Visit health.gov.au or speak to your doctor to find out when you are eligible. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Who's going to swim in the river? Who's going to smell the rose? Who's going to taste the bees and the birds? Who's going to sing for our souls? I'm in love.
that was In Love with This Place by Jess Ribeiro. And now we'll hear a talk by the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Gutierrez, calling for a coalition of the world. I think it's one of his best speeches, so I hope you enjoy it. Excellencies, progress on these issues and more is being held hostage by geopolitical tensions. Our world is in peril and paralyzed. Geopolitical divides are undermining the work of the Security Council, undermining international law, undermining trust and people's faith in democratic institutions, undermining all forms of international cooperation. We cannot go on like this. Even the various groupings set up outside the multilateral system by some members of the international community have fallen into the trap of geopolitical divides like in the G20. At one stage, international relations seem to be moving towards a G2 world. Now we risk ending up with a G nothing. No cooperation, no dialogue, no collective problem solving. But the reality is that we live in a world where the logic of cooperation and dialogue is the only path forward. No power or group alone can call the shots. No major global challenge can be solved with a coalition of the willing. We need a coalition of the world. Excellencies, there is another battle we must end, our suicidal war against nature. The climate crisis is the defining issue of our time, and it must be the first priority of every government and multilateral organization. And yet, climate action is being put on the back burner, despite overwhelming public support around the world. Global greenhouse gas emissions need to be slashed by 45% by 2030 to have any hope of reaching net zero emissions by 2050. And yet, emissions are going up at record levels on course to a 14% increase this decade. We have a rendezvous with climate disaster. I recently saw it with my own eyes in Pakistan, where one third of the country is submerged by a monsoon on steroids. We see it everywhere. Planet Earth is a victim of scorched Earth policies. The past year has brought us Europe's worst heat wave since the Middle Ages. Mega drought in China, the United States and beyond. Famine stalking the Horn of Africa. One million species at risk of extinction. No region is untouched. And we ain't seen nothing yet. The hottest summers of today may be the coolest summers of tomorrow. Once-in-a-lifetime climate shocks may soon become once-a-year events. And with every climate disaster, we know that women and girls are the most affected. The climate crisis is a case study in moral and economic injustice. The G20 emits 80% of all greenhouse gas emissions. But the poorest and most vulnerable, those who contributed least to this crisis, are bearing its most brutal impacts. Meanwhile, the fossil fuel industry is feasting on hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies and windfall profits, while households' budgets shrink and our planet burns. Excellencies, let's tell it like it is. Our world is addicted to fossil fuels, and it's time for an intervention. We need to hold fossil fuel companies and their enablers to account. And that includes the banks, private equity, asset managers, and other financial institutions that continue to invest and underwrite carbon pollution. It includes the massive public relations machine raking in billions to shield the fossil fuel industry from scrutiny. But it's high time to put fossil fuel producers, investors, and enablers on notice. Polluters must pay. And today I'm calling on all developed economies to tax the windfall profits of fossil fuel companies. Those funds should be redirected in two ways, to countries suffering loss and damage caused by the climate crisis and to people struggling with rising food and energy prices. As you heard to the COP27 UN climate conference in Egypt, I appeal to all leaders to realize the goals of the Paris Agreement. Lift your climate ambition. Listen to your people's calls for change. Invest in solutions that lead to sustainable economic growth. 
last year in Glasgow, developed countries agreed to double adaptation funding by 2025. These must be delivered in full as a starting point. At minimum, adaptation must make up half of all climate finance. And multilateral development banks must step up and deliver. Major economies are their shareholders and must make it happen. It's high time to move beyond endless discussions. Vulnerable countries need meaningful action. Loss and damage are happening now, hurting people and economies now and must be addressed now, starting at COP27. This is a fundamental question of climate justice, international solidarity and trust. And at the same time, we must make sure that every person, community and nation has access to effective early warning systems within the next five years. And we must address the biodiversity crisis by making the December UN Biodiversity Conference a success. The world must agree on a post-2020 global biodiversity framework, one that sets ambitious targets to halt and reverse biodiversity loss, provides adequate financing, and eliminates harmful subsidies that destroy ecosystems on which we all depend. We must protect the ocean now and for the future. Creditors should consider debt reduction mechanisms, such as debt climate adaptation swaps. And this could have saved lives and livelihoods in Pakistan, which is drowning not only in flood water, but in debt. Excellencies, let me be clear. Today's global financial system was created by rich countries to serve their interests many decades ago. It expands and entrenches inequalities. It requires deep structural reform. And my report on our common agenda proposes a new global deal to rebalance power and resources between developed and developing countries. By acting as one, we can nurture fragile shoots of hope. The hope found in climate and peace activists around the world, calling out for change and demanding better of their leaders. The hope found in young people working every day for a better, more peaceful future. The hope found in women and girls living and fighting for those still being denied their basic human rights. The hope found throughout civil society seeking ways to build more just and equal communities and countries. And the hope found in science and academia racing to stay ahead of deadly diseases and then the COVID-19 pandemic. The hope found in humanitarian heroes rushing to deliver life-saving aid around the world. The United Nations stands with them all. We know lofty ideals must be made real in people's lives, so let's develop common solutions to common problems, grounded in goodwill, trust, and the rights shared by every human being. Let's work as one, a coalition of the world, as United Nations. Thank you. Now let's hear a strategy talk from Extinction Rebellion with Nelly and Nola. Hi, I'm Gully. I'm Nola. And today we're going to talk to you a little bit about Project 3.5, which we've been working on for Extinction Rebellion for the past six months or so. Before we get into that, I just want to take a second to imagine something together. In 2003, two million people flooded the streets of London to protest the Iraq war. Sadly, we know how that panned out. But take a second to think what might have happened if those two million people had sat down in the road and refused to move. If instead of going home that day, they had said, no, I'm not going back to business as usual, not going back to my job, not going to keep my head down and keep quiet. I'm not going to move from this spot until the government engages with my demand. Now, Extinction Rebellion was founded on a really simple theory of change. And theory of change is jargon. It basically means the plan which we think is going to win. That theory of change says that when roughly 3.5% of a population is actively engaged in a resistance movement, that's roughly when the government is going to be forced to respond. Now, that doesn't mean we think 3.5% is the magic number. Doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to translate precisely to our context here in the UK. Doesn't mean that we think any of this is going to be easy. But when you boil it all down, all that that means is that we believe in people power. And Extinction Rebellion does believe in that. That's what we're founded on. The belief that a mass amount of people taking action together in the streets 
demanding action from the government that we elected can make change. So people power has been shown throughout history to work and we've seen it for ourselves. In 2019, about 10,000 of us flooded the streets of London, shut down parts of central London for around 10 days, put a pink boat in Oxford Circus, among other things. Two weeks later, the UK Parliament became the first in the world to declare a climate emergency. This House must declare an environment and climate emergency. We have no time to waste. That's just because 10,000 of us, which is a fraction of 3.5% of the population, made ourselves impossible to ignore. We said we're not going home until you negotiate with us. So we've seen it works. We just need more people. 3.5% of the UK population is over 2 million people. And that seems like a huge number, seems daunting, but it's not impossible. And even if it was impossible, we would try anyway, because we have to. So why is civil resistance so much more effective than armed struggle? The answer seems to lie in people power itself. Researchers used to say that no government could survive if just 5% of its population rose up against it. Our data show that the number may be lower than that. No single campaigns failed during that time period after they'd achieved the active and sustained participation of just 3.5% of the population. Like Gully said, in the UK, 3.5% of our population is over 2 million people. But what we're looking for is a trigger number that will bring that 3.5% out onto the streets. And we know from Erica Chenoweth's research that a large part of that 3.5% join when they can feel that there's a moment happening. So it's like all those people who say to themselves, when the moment comes, I'll stand up for what's right. It's signaling to them that moment has arrived. Not everybody wants to take the same chances in life and many people won't turn up unless they expect safety in numbers. The visibility of many civil resistance tactics like protests allow them to draw these risk-averse people into the fray. And I think it's fair to say that the conditions for this work are ripe. Levels of climate concern in the UK are reaching record highs and people understand that the government might say all the right words but they actually don't have a plan. And add to that the fact that like increasing numbers of people across the UK can't afford to pay their like basic bills. And you have a situation where people understand that our mode of politics and the way that we organise our economy doesn't work for them. The worst is yet to come. The Bank of England believes the squeeze on our living standards will be so severe that it's forecasting a recession in all but name. We've talked about this figure of two million people, but we've also talked about a trigger number. So what if we set ourselves the goal of a trigger number of 100,000 people, then we give ourselves the potential to bring millions onto the streets, to activate millions of people. And so with that in mind, we've made a plan and that plan is scalable, it's repeatable and it's fun. Yes, so I'm gonna talk you through that work in a bit more detail. Just briefly, I'm gonna talk you through the method that we're using. Um, it's really simple. We're not reinventing the wheel purposefully. It's supposed to be simple so that three or 3,000 people can easily pick it up and run with it. And they are across the country. Um, and local groups are innovating this method all the time and making it work for them, which is amazing. So step one is the outreach. Typically, we're knocking on doors. Um, and it's really important that that, that step one happens um, really close to where the talk, which is step two, is going to be held. So when you're choosing the venue... Uh, for the talk, you then do door knocking in, in the streets immediately surrounding that venue. That's because everything we're doing in 3.5 is hyper-localised. So we're knocking on the door and all we're doing is having a conversation. Like we're not going there to tell you anything, we're not lecturing you, um, we're really listening. That's, that's the basic part of it is um, connecting with people in our local communities and getting to know them and asking what is worrying them, how scared they are about the climate crisis, do they think the government is doing a good job. So we're building that actual human connection with our neighbours, which is revolutionary in itself, having conversations about the climate crisis, which we're not doing often enough at all. Um, and we are inviting them to join us. So we have a really simple ask on the doorstep, join us at a talk down the road next week or whenever it is. So 
the, the fact that it's hyper-local removes that barrier to entry, it's just down the road. Step two is the talk, and this is not the Heading for Extinction talk, it's something new that's been written for Project 3.5 with a new context in mind, this new context being the fact that we're no longer trying to educate so much on the crisis, we're now really trying to get people to do something about it. Um, so it's much shorter, we spend no more than 15 minutes explaining the crisis, and in those 15 minutes, again, we're not using lots of hard, cold facts, we are basing it again on human connection and emotion. And then we get to the good stuff, which is our plan to win. So we explain Project 3.5 like we're doing now, we explain our target of mobilising 100,000 people into action, and then we invite them to take on a role there and then. Because again, the research shows that a key part of keeping people engaged is giving them a task and a responsibility and the trust and the accountability to keep that, to, to deliver on that task. And that can be anything from, I have a couple of hours a week to go door knocking with you, all the way through to, I'm going to take on a full-time role in a national circle and everywhere in between. Step three is um, the all-important integration step. And this will look differently for local groups, depending on your context and what's, what's going on, if you have a local campaign or anything like that. Um, but the key part of it is we do a follow-up call with that person one to two days after the talk. So it's really quick after the talk and it's personalized again based in listening again building that human connection what did you think of the talk what did you commit to doing how can i support you what do you want to do next so those are the three steps as nula said they're built to be cyclical and scalable and groups all across the country are having success with it as we speak people the power since Extinction Rebellion started, we've become experts at direct action and disruptive tactics. But now, if we're really serious about testing our theory of change, if we really believe in people power, we need to become experts at mobilising. The tools are there, the method is here, it's been worked on, it's being used right now by local groups all around the country. But we need more people, we really need your help. Let's get on with it. Yeah, let's do it. I'm glad you listened to our Climate Action radio show today. Thanks go to Fahima Badrul Hisham from Moving Beyond Coal, to Nick Breeze and Climate Gen interviewing Dr. Salimul Haq, and you can find many more brilliant interviews on Climate Gen, which is spelt G E double N. Thank you to the Secretary-General of the United Nations and his impassioned speech after witnessing both the war in Ukraine and the floods in Pakistan. As he says, our world is in peril and paralysed. Thank you to Extinction Rebellion, who are building a mass movement, engaging people like you and me in citizens' assemblies and using well-tried strategies to rebel against extinction. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.